0: I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black best To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver And gold you have taken From somebody else You're listening to
1: episode 730 of Unwelcome Guests, the lifeblood of Empire. I'm Robin Upton, and we're looking at oil this week. I've adapted a video documentary, The Secrets of the Seven Sisters, first brought to my attention by Unwelcome Guests member Kenneth Dowst for his own radio show, New World Notes. And that's going to form the basis of our programme this week, supplemented with some thoughts by Russ Baker from Family of Secrets. This got my attention because it starts with a meeting in 1928, the Aknakari Castle Agreement, which I hadn't heard about. And so it's remarkable just how much hidden history there is out there. It doesn't gloss over the role of intelligence agencies. For my tastes, it doesn't dive quite deep enough. I'd like to hear more about their importance. It's got a rather geographical focus, and it manages to weave together events to an intelligible thread, one which provided me with some new insights into oil geopolitics. This is from Al Jazeera, and I think it's from 2013.
2: Iraq, Iran, and Kuwait. This documentary is on the trail of the Seven Sisters cartel. The investigation leads to Kirkuk in northern Iraq. It's 50 degrees in the shade. There are endless checkpoints and controls. The war has left its mark. In the heart of the Middle East, Iraq, one of the latest battlefields in the Great Oil War. This old American taxi is a gas guzzler, constantly hungry for fuel. The driver seeks out the local petrol peddlers. In oil rich Iraq, it's not easy filling a tank. Who is responsible for that?
3: We are a people of oil.
1: Everyone around the world speaks of Iraq's oil. The Americans came to Iraq out of greed. They brought insecurity. When they're in the street, you'd better walk behind them. They're more of a burden than an asset. Why did God bring them here? They've ruined Iraq.
2: With multiple attacks and kidnappings, insecurity is rife amongst the derricks and wells. The taxi driver, Ali, calls the route to Kirkuk, the road to hell. Oil had previously been found in the Middle East, but never in such quantities. In 1927, it gushed from the ground in Kirkuk. The violence of the discharge caused five casualties. Iraq's oil was already wreaking its wrath. But the real story, the secret story of oil, begins elsewhere, in Scotland, in the heart of the Highlands, on August 28, 1928, in Aknakari Castle. Three men have an appointment here, a Dutchman, an American, and an Englishman. The Dutchman is Henry Deterting, an implacable and determined man, nicknamed the Napoleon of Oil. Having exploited a find in Sumatra, He joined forces with a rich ship owner and painted shell salesman. The two men founded Royal Dutch Shell. The American is Walter C. Teagle. He represents the Standard Oil Company, founded by John D. Rockefeller at the age of 31, the future Exxon. Wells, transport, refining and distribution, everything is controlled by Standard an omnipotent, many-headed beast. In 1911, Rockefeller was ordered to dismantle his trust and form 34 separate companies. And yet they all remained under the control of the century's first billionaire. The Englishman, Sir John Cadman, director of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, soon to become BP. On the initiative of the brilliant young First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, British government took a stake in BP and the Royal Navy switched from coal to oil. The First World War would validate this decision. With fuel-hungry ships, planes and tanks, oil became the blood of every battle. The new automobile industry was developing fast and the Ford T was selling by the million. The world was thirsty for oil and companies were waging a merciless contest. But the competition was making the market unstable. It was time to reach an agreement. Their names are Royal Dutch Shell, Standard Oil and the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Today, Shell, Exxon and BP, the biggest oil companies in the world. Back at the castle, the leading lights of the oil trade are seated and their secret meeting can begin. Henry Detting declares... It is time to exploit, fraternally and to the greatest profit, the world's oil resources. Production zones, transport costs, sale prices, everything must be agreed and shared. In the early hours, an agreement is reached. A secret pact is sealed, but with no signatures. The great oil cartel can prepare to dominate the world. Accords
4: qui ont lieu, uh Qui sont informel, in d'accord. 1928,
1: the great oil uh, companies de partager, decided, monde, through the acme agreements, to share oil uh, prices en, and en formant uh, production zones by forming a de facto cartel. cartel.
4: Et est que, the countries were kept in the dark, uh, as were their governments
1: and the, and the producing countries. countries. Autant, this means e that it e was all e e done in e e the, e the e greatest secrecy and amorality.
4: Dans le secret
1: We'd have to wait, et, not just uh, until the end of the war, but until early
4: the early
2: 1950s, for the details
1: the of this agreement to finally begin so to leak out. To
2: On this morning of August 29th, 1928, the world order has changed. Other companies would join the billionaire's conspiracy. History will call them the Seven Sisters. Exxon, Shell, BP, Mobil... Texaco, Gulf and Chevron. The story of the Seven Sisters takes us to Tehran. In the early 20th century, the oil companies fought bitterly here to control Persia's vast oil assets. At the end of the First World War, through the sykes pico agreements, then the Treaty of San Remo, France and Britain divided up the Middle East. The American oil companies were enraged. What could be done? The solution came from an Armenian, Callouts Gulbenkian, the greatest oil broker of all time. Gulbenkian drew a red line, tracing the perimeters of future oil extraction zones, forbidding competition and demanding mutual assistance within the red line area. The Iraq Petroleum Company was created. BP, Shell, Exxon and the French SFP, the Future Total, were equal shareholders. The Seven Sisters controlled the Middle East's known oil reserves. Gulbenkian claimed 5% of every contract.
1: Pierre Telsien, Director of Petrostrategie. The contracts were short texts of 15 or 20 pages. Through them, the states conceded almost all their territory. One can imagine how ignorant they were to do such a thing. These people bought up whole countries, or at least their resources, with documents barely 15 or 20 pages long.
2: For the British, the Abadan refinery in Iran was the jewel in the crown, the biggest refinery in the world. The Iranians never had access to the company's accounts. The royalties paid to the Iranian state were negligible, but sufficient to satisfy the reigning monarch, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, and by his silence. The Anglo-Persian was a state within a state, where the law and the lifestyle were consummately British, the Seven Sisters ruled over the Middle East and its oil. Oil which had to flow with no interruption towards Europe and the United States.
1: Professor Michael Clare of Hampshire College.
0: Delivery of oil to the public is, is a crucial requirement of any person who wants to remain in office. And one has to understand the importance of oil to the American way of life to understand why politicians see their job as, in large part, if they're in foreign policy, is in procuring adequate supplies of oil to meet American needs. It explains why President Roosevelt, in his last months when he was ailing, felt it necessary to meet with the king of Saudi Arabia, Abdelaziz Aziz ibn Saud.
2: Oil requirements were ever-increasing. On his way back from the Yalta Conference on February 14, 1945, President Roosevelt anchored his ship, the USS Quincy, near the Suez Canal. He had a meeting with the King of Arabia, Abdulaziz ibn Saud. Nothing would be signed, but they reconvened an agreement made in 1936, opening the doors of the Kingdom of Arabia to American oil companies. In exchange for the oil, the king demanded protection for his country and gold. A great deal of gold. The kingdom's fortune was sealed by an English adventurer, Harry St. John Philby, a spy, explorer, and writer who'd been entrusted, along with a certain Colonel Lawrence, with organizing the Arab revolt. Having converted to Islam, Philby sided with Ibn Saud against his own country and participated in the creation of the Kingdom of Arabia. In 1936, on his advice, Ibn Saud sold the kingdom's oil rights to the Americans. Aramco was founded, a consortium combining Exxon, Chevron, Mobil and Texaco.
5: All these companies like Aramco in the old days, they were a state within the state. Saudi Arabia cannot have a law controlling Aramco. Aramco has the power to produce the oil, to export the oil at the price they decide. Saudi Arabia has no power except to raise their hands to get the money they give them. And this was the relationship.
2: Arabian oil production began in 1946, shortly after the meeting between Roosevelt and Ibn Saud. 20,000 Americans were billeted to Dahran in Eastern Arabia. In theory, the oil men were merely the king's guests, as no one could purchase the prophet's holy lands. But in fact, Aramco set the rules for the king, its greatest ally. The American company's only obligation was to shower the king and his 3,000 princes with gold. The desert's oil resources proved to be fabulous, the greatest treasure trove of all time. The United States and Saudi Arabia were wedded, for better or for worse, oil and dollars. Despite the ensuing crises, there has been no divorce. It was here in Washington in 1952 that the Seven Sisters cartel was summoned to face the Supreme Court for the first time. The Federal Trade Commission was investigating their commercial practices and illicit arrangements. President Harry Truman received a confidential memo from Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, but the investigation was blocked. The trial would never take place. What was good for the Seven Sisters was good for America. In Tehran, the Bazaar is the heart and pulse of the Iranian capital. It was here in 1951 that the first revolt against British Petroleum began. The Bazaaris, the middle classes, the Tudor party communists and Shia religious leaders took to the streets. Their action was triggered by BP's refusal to meet improved wage claims. The workers launched a strike which paralyzed Abadan, the huge oil terminal.
0: This was absolutely crucial source of wealth to what remained of the British Empire after World War II. And it was also a symbol of white Anglo-Saxon superiority. And the the histories of the time make it very clear that for the, for the British, the Iranians were viewed as third-class citizens, as if they were black.
2: An uprising was sparked. A nationalist MP, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh, was the movement's leader. In Parliament, he was known as Mossadegh al-Saltaneh, a man of proven honesty. His program was simple. Nationalize the oil.
1: Faribor Ziraisdana, a historian. (laughs) Dr Mossadegh was accused (laughs) of radicalism, which,
4: of (laughs) course, isn't true.
1: (laughs) He had identified (laughs) the essential problem... (laughs) ...recovering the oil (laughs) that had been confiscated.
2: Under pressure from Parliament, the Shah appointed Mossadegh Prime Minister. On the very next day, May 1st, 1951... Mossadegh led the vote for the nationalisation of Iran's oil. The army occupied the oil fields, but the Iranians were not qualified to keep operations going. 3,000 British technicians and their families left the country, and the British Navy blockaded the ports.
1: There was extraordinary pandemonium around the world. The Western countries declared Iranian petrol off-limits. Anyone buying Iranian oil would be taken to court, so Iran could no longer sell its oil to anyone. Any tankers leaving Iranian ports were seized.
2: Iran and Dr Mossadegh had to be punished. The British Prime Minister Winston Churchill asked the Americans to help. The CIA stepped in. Countless dollars were distributed to pay off members of parliament and leading army officers. The coup d'etat operation was given the codename Ajax. It was coordinated by Kermit Roosevelt, the president's nephew and a CIA agent. There was a
1: military coup. Democrat generals, communists and nationalists were shot. Dr Mossadegh was sent into exile. Iran was submerged in fear. And the oil companies regained their old power.
2: 5,000 of the coup's opponents were shot and killed. Mossadegh was arrested and sentenced to death, A sentence later, reduced to exile. On August 24, 1953, the monarch, Reza Shah, returned in triumph. Having organized the coup d'etat, the Americans claimed their reward. BP had to make way for the US companies. Now present in both Iran and Saudi Arabia, The USA controlled two of the planet's biggest black gold producers.
1: It was common practice. The fact that the CIA intervened in Iran to establish foreign oil companies is not unusual for that time. The American oil companies are so powerful that they can easily choose to 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 make or break break a government.
4: What is exceptional is that that one
1: man stood up, Mossadegh, and it it resulted in failure. uh, That had a major effect. uh, For several years, no one dared to move a muscle.
2: The shockwave created by Mossadegh did move towards Suez, however. Egypt had never benefited from the huge revenues generated by the canal, shared by France and Britain. On July 26, 1956, President Nasser declared the nationalisation of the canal. A British, French and Israeli coalition attacked Egypt. Port Said, at the entrance to the canal, was bombarded and Egyptian forces crushed. Nasser sunk concrete-laden ships in the canal and all traffic was blocked. Under American and Soviet pressure, the Anglo-French forces were forced to withdraw. For Nasser, a military defeat became a political victory. Nasserism and Arab nationalism were born on the banks of the Suez Canal.
1: La nationalisation du canal de Suez, contrairement the the Suez celle canal, Iran, unlike celle oil in en Iran, was a success. Et là, ça va marquer aussi les esprits. That had a profound effect. On peut réussir, it was on possible peut to succeed uh, to oppose the uh, Western countries, and certain in certain cases, it could be a
2: A political victory for the Arab countries, but an economic victory for the oil companies. The closure of the canal led to a substantial rise in crude oil prices, huge profits for the Seven Sisters. The rise enabled them to pay for the building of a new generation of ships, supertankers. And the Cape of Good Hope became the new maritime route for oil transportation. Baghdad, translatable as the Garden of Peace. For the people of this city, there is neither war nor peace. But worse, a living nightmare every day, a life of uncertainty. It was here on the banks of the Tigris that the Seven Sisters would pay for their sins. Vanity and greed. The Sisters were greedy. Despite the havoc caused by the Suez Crisis, Shell and BP decided to cut the buying price of oil by 9% under the pretext of overproduction. It was the Seven Sisters' first mistake. On September 10, 1960, representatives from Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran and Kuwait all met in Baghdad. After four days of discussion, they agreed to found OPEC, the Organisation of Petrol Exporting Countries. Their objective to collectively fix the sale price of their oil.
1: All their decisions would be examined because they had an impact on the price of raw material
4: essential to modern economies. Well,
5: the Western countries did not really feel that this little organization will be powerful so they ignore it the oil companies also being very powerful they ignored it not only this they refuse to mention the word opec and i know for sure that america was working very hard to convince some countries in the Gulf not to join this, including Saudi Arabia.
2: This is the story of the Seven Sisters Cartel, a group of companies that dominate the world's petroleum industry Exxon, Shell, BP, Mobil, Texaco, Gulf and Chevron. It began with a secret meeting between three top oil traders back in 1928 and a secret pact to start exploiting the world's oil resources. In 1960, after decades of exploitation, oil producing countries came together to form the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC collectively fix the price of their oil. The creation of OPEC was greeted in the West with indifference, scepticism and scorn. The Washington Post wrote, OPEC, a belligerent conglomerate of camel-riding emirates. The West's overt contempt disgruntled the new leader in Iraq, Saddam Hussein. On June 1, 1972, without any notice, he nationalised the Iraq Petroleum Company, it put an end to the concession regimes which had handed over Iraq's oil to the majors for some 50 years.
1: Pierre Thésien, director of Petro Lorsqu'en 1972, Iraq, Iraq nationalized, nationalized the oil consortium, the, consortium the IPC, IPC in Trump 1972. On rendu à apart from a few Westerners, the, the company's directors, was, dizaines d'Occidentaux, were all Iraqis. The technicians were
4: Iraqi,
1: and so were the engineers and the economists.
4: So Iraq's
1: nationalisation of its oil was authentic.
2: The American majors were furious. Foreseeing this, Saddam Hussein called on the Soviet Union. Moscow supplied technical and military support. Then he turned to the French. France needed oil. Iraq, arms. The deal was a foregone conclusion. Arab oil nationalisation and the creation of OPEC. This time, the Seven Sisters' power seemed to be severely undermined. Strangely enough, the Arab-Israeli conflict would serve the Seven Sisters' cause. In the midst of the Jewish Yom Kippur holiday, the Day of Atonement, in October 1973, Egypt and Syria attacked Israel. The surprise was total, and the Israeli defence lines were overcome. The fourth Arab-Israeli conflict had begun.
1: Xavier Auzel, oil trader.
4: The
1: Israel-Palestine drama was an alibi. It is fortunate for the rest of the world, as consumers of the Middle East's oil, that as a result of the conflict, countries in the region remained divided. They deprived themselves of the means to impose their strategy and oil prices that would have made them the richest countries in the world.
2: Armed and equipped by the United States and empowered by their aerial supremacy, the Israelis' counter-offensive was victorious. As a reprisal to the American support, Arab members of OPEC decided on a series of price rises. OPEC emerged from the shadows of scorn and indifference. After the nationalisation of oil in Iraq, Iran, Libya and Algeria, OPEC covered 70% of the world's oil. It announced a complete embargo against the United States and Holland. And it also embargoed shipments to Rotterdam, a major oil terminal.
1: Sheikh Ahmed Zaki Yamani, Saudi Minister of Petroleum, 1962-1986.
5: We, according to our philosophy, we don't use oil as a penalty, a punishment but as a political instrument to attract the attention that there is a problem between the Arabs and the Israelis. Some other oil producers within OPEC, they wanted to punish America. In Washington in
2: 1973, a wind of panic was blowing. Automobiles ground to a halt and the world turned in slow motion.
0: In recent months, we have taken many actions to increase supplies and to reduce consumption. But even with our best efforts, we knew that a period of temporary shortages was inevitable. Unfortunately, our expectations for this winter have now been sharply altered by the recent conflict in the Middle East.
2: Strengthened by the capacity of their stocks and the staggering cost of a barrel, the Seven Sisters could boast colossal profits. Exxon doubled its revenues.
5: I was against increasing the price of oil, and uh, they attacked me for that. But I knew for sure that very high prices will have a reaction. The reaction happened, but you don't come to oil producers who can make a lot of money and tell them, no, don't make a lot of money. They don't consider the strategy. Strategy because when you raise the price of oil, you enable the oil companies to use the extra money to explore for oil, and this is what happened in the North Sea, in Mexico, and elsewhere. So the level of production outside OPEC took place,
2: competing with the price of OPEC. OPEC thought it had won the battle, but in fact it had lost the war. The 1973 oil crisis was a gigantic manipulation The Seven Sisters needed money, huge sums, to finally prepare for drilling the offshore zones in the North Sea. The Yom Kippur War, OPEC's embargo and the rise in prices all benefited the Seven Sisters. The Arab countries were playing their enemies' game. In 1975, the Shah of Iran was the key player in the global oil game. Saudi Arabia was too weak, Iraq too threatening. And so, with Nixon's blessing, the Shah became the Gulf's gendarme.
0: And the Shah of Iran became an American puppet, rather than a British puppet. In addition to the diplomatic and, and uh, public face of U.S. support for the Shah, the U.S. also provided him with military assistance and assistance to his police forces and the secret police, SAVAC, the secret police of the Shah, And it was the secret police that was implicated in the uh, repression and the slaughter of the Shiite clergy and other dissident groups inside Iran. In
2: exile in France, in Nofle le Chateau, the Shah's fiercest opponent, Ayatollah Khomeini, made a solemn appeal for resistance. A strike in the oil sector, he said, is an act of obedience to God. His message was heard. Not a single drop of oil was extracted. The people were in the streets and the Shah's days were numbered.
1: Two months after the strikes in the Iranian oil industry... Les ouvriers ont décrété the workers ont for a complete de la shutdown of oil production. En Iran. Et je me souviens de I la remember déclaration the Americans saying Américains a few days later, jours plus tard, we now know disaient, that with the Shah of Iran there will ceci, be no oil production. Nous le Shah it was Iran, clear to everyone, the Shah's, Shah's fate was sealed. Pour tout le monde, clair. Le the, the oil Shah that had overthrown Mossadegh was about to overthrow the Shah.
2: The Americans and their oil companies turned their backs on the emperor. Turmoil was not good for business. Sick and broken, the monarch left Iran. Only the Egyptian president, Anwar sadat deigned to receive him. Reza Shah would only be authorised to enter the United States one year later to die of cancer. Ayatollah Khomeini returned to Tehran in triumph. The West believed it could cope with the change in regime. Religious authority was better than communism. The USSR was far too close to Iran, but the Americans severely underestimated the new Shia government's anger and resentment. At congregational prayers on Friday, the same slogans can be heard as at the time of the Ayatollah more than 30 years ago. In 1979, for America, the oil companies, and the Sunni Arab world, Iraq was the new ally. The secular regime in Baghdad was a shield against the Iranian Shia fundamentalists. In 1981, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran with everyone's blessing. The second oil crisis began and the war was a sinister godsend for the Seven Sisters. The price of crude oil skyrocketed. For both the companies and the producing countries, petrodollars rained down in abundance.
0: So in the chaos of this moment of the Iranian revolution in 1980, Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. And I believe his intention was to seize the southwestern part of the country where most of Iran's oil fields are located. He was uh, somewhat successful at first, but then the Iranian revolution mobilized young people, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, and drove Saddam Hussein out of Iran and began to press into Iraq itself. And this caused a great deal of anxiety in the West, in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, which uh, began to fear the success of the Iranians, who were Shiites, and so they began supporting Saddam Hussein.
2: Eight years of war took a heavy toll. More than a million casualties and extensive oil facilities destroyed on both sides.
1: On a fait la guerre, we waged Iran, the Iran-Iraq war. We waged it because one country had to use to destroy the other. They benefit from the over-manager, they build up financial reserves, from time to time, time, they have to be bled.
2: The return of peace raised a question for the majors. Could peace lead to overproduction? The answer came from Kuwait. The Emirate increased its own production by 20%. Oil prices fell immediately. In addition, the emir refused to cancel the fifteen billion dollar debt contracted by Iraq. Saddam felt betrayed by his former allies, who had all profited from the conflict.
1: Mohammed Ali Zaini, former Iraqi
6: representative of the major country, which really kept overproducing and and kind of uh, assumed some intransigent mode, was was uh, was. Uh, Kuwait. And that's what really pressured uh, Saddam, because he really needed needed uh, 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 the money. Um, every time, every time uh, the price went one dollar down, Iraq would lose one billion dollars.
2: This was too much for Saddam Hussein, who informed the United States Ambassador April Glaspie, of his intention to send military forces into Kuwait. She replied that this was an internal matter between two neighboring countries. The dictator was led to believe the U.S. would not intervene. On August second, nineteen ninety, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait.
6: And so, only a short period after meeting the American ambassador, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And if you ask me, was this a trap? I would say yes. Saddam fell into that trap uh,
2: 100%. The net around Saddam was tightening. It was unthinkable for the American administration to allow the Iraqi dictator to confiscate Kuwait's oil. In 1991, in just a few days, the Iraqi forces were crushed.
1: George H.W. Bush.
0: As commander-in-chief, I can report to you our armed forces fought with honour and valour And as president, I can report to the nation, aggression is defeated, the war is over.
2: But the new world order sought by President Bush began in a raging inferno. It would take nine months to extinguish the fires at some 750 wells sabotaged by the Iraqi troops.
1: Eric Laurent, journalist.
2: Kuwait
1: has always been de, seen as uh, the Bush, Bush family's Bush, backyard.
4: Parce que il faut souligner que George Bush
1: George Bush euh, Sr., the president père, at the time, à sa made his fortune à through his, his oil company Zapata, called Zapata en obtenant by obtaining drilling rights in Kuwait's offshore oil fields after World War II. Now, all this talk about Poppy Bush and Zapata oil, I thought, who better to give us the real deal on this? Let's hear a reading from Russ Baker's Family of Secrets.
3: Very likely it was Zapata Offshore, launched by Poppy in 1954, just as the U.S. government, under an administration dominated by the Dulles Bush circles, began auctioning offshore mineral rights. The funding, again, came courtesy of Uncle Herbie, who organized a stock issue. In 1958, Zapata Offshore's drilling rig Scorpion was moved from the Gulf of Mexico to Quezal Bank, the most remote group of islands in the Bahamas and just 54 miles north of Isabella, Cuba. The island had been recently leased to oil man Howard Hughes, who had his own long-standing CIA ties as well as his own private CIA. Hughes would even lend his ship to the CIA to dredge for a Soviet submarine. By most appearances, a number of CIA-connected entities were involved in the operation. Zapata leased the Scorpion to Standard Oil of California and to Gulf Oil. CIA Director Dulles had previously served as Gulf's counsel for Latin America. The same year that Gulf leased Bush's platform, CIA veteran Kermit Kim Roosevelt joined Gulf's board. This was the same Kermit Roosevelt who had overseen the CIA's successful 1953 coup against the democratically elected Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, after Mossadegh began nationalizing Anglo-American oil concessions it looked like the Bush CIA group was preparing for operations in the Caribbean Basin. The offshore platforms had a specific purpose. George Bush would be given a list of names of Cuban oil workers we would want placed in jobs, said one official connected to Operation Mongoose, the program to overthrow Castro. The oil platforms he dealt in were perfect for training the Cubans in raids on their homeland. The importance of this early Bush connection with Cuba should not be ignored in assessing his connections to contemporaneous events. For example, it sheds light on the 1963 memo from J. Edgar Hoover discovered by reporter Joseph McBride. The memo, which mentioned a briefing about Cuban activity in the wake of the JFK assassination, had been given to George Bush of the CIA. Years later, many figures from the Bay of Pigs operation would resurface in key positions in administrations in which Poppy Bush held high posts and during his own presidency. Others would show up in off-the-books operations run by Poppy's friends and associates. George H. W. Bush did not, however, limit himself to the Caribbean. This period of his life was characterized by frenetic travel to all corners of the world. Though Zapata had only a handful of rigs, the pattern would continue through his entire career. He set up operations for Zapata offshore in the Gulf of Mexico, the Persian Gulf, Trinidad, Borneo, and Medellin, Colombia. Clients included the Kuwait Shell Petroleum Development Company— which began his close association with the Kuwaiti elite.
1: Now, I wanted to have that as a sort of antidote to superficial thinking. That's from a very highly recommended family of secrets, a real magnum opus from Russ Baker about the hidden history of the Bush dynasty. It certainly elucidates the threads between these different deep events, and with Zapata oil underlines the fact that it would be a big mistake to look upon that as primarily a business venture. No, there do appear to have been some far more sinister aspects to that than just making money. Now that point having been clarified, let's continue. The documentary talks about Kuwait.
2: At the beginning of the 20th century, This stretch of sand, seized by Iraqi tribesmen, lived under the protection of the British Empire, a small pearl-fishing port that served the British Navy en route to India. In 1938, oil flowed from the Kuwaiti desert. The tiny emirate, a mere patch of sand, proved to be a veritable oil sponge. American and British companies exploited this desert treasure and made fortunes for themselves, for the emir and his subjects.
1: Kamel al Harami, Kuwaiti oil analyst.
4: It was like an earthquake. It changed the whole face of Kuwait society. All of a sudden, we were in the press. All of a sudden, we were the biggest oil producer in the world. All of a sudden, we have the wealth. And from basically, very basic living standard. You know, barely, you know, having food or uh, barely having proper clothes. And all of a sudden, here we are. The doors of heaven open to us.
2: In January 2001, George W. Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney, launched an energy policy development group, the Energy Task Force. The aims of this commission were surrounded in absolute secrecy. For the Washington Post, it was a secret society. More than ever, the American administration appeared to be an extension of the oil lobby. Dick Cheney, a former president of Halliburton, Condoleezza Rice, a former executive with Chevron, all committed to the oil company's cause.
4: In 2003,
1: the Commission was obliged by a federal court to release some documents, one of which is
4: very interesting. It's
1: a map of Iraq dividing the part that's close to Saudi Arabia into eight oil extraction zones. Oil was central
4: to the strategy of this commission. Oil and
2: Iraq. The September 11th attacks to the heart of the American dream unleash unprecedented violence. Terrorism, weapons of mass destruction. The 9-11 tragedy is a long-awaited pretext with the world's second-largest oil reserves, Iraq is designated as a response to America's energy requirements.
6: Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil... Arming to threaten the peace of the world. This is a
2: city in ruin. The calm waters of the Tigris form the horizon line from the Al mansur Hotel.
6: A big
5: explosion less than a mile from our hotel. That followed this, the first hit on the government. From
2: these balconies, the world witnessed the American raids on the capital on television when bombs hurled by invisible aircraft seemed to raise the the city into the skies. On March 20th, 2003, the Second Gulf War had just begun. In less than three weeks, the Abrams tanks leading Operation Iraqi Freedom reached the outskirts of Baghdad. The US troops' first mission was to secure the oil wells.
4: The first
1: orders given to the military were to secure the oil installations. That was the priority. And to secure the oil ministry in Baghdad. Shortly after, Saddam Hussein was overthrown. When the American troops entered Baghdad, the ministries were all pillaged. But when you saw the oil ministry, it was surrounded by
4: armoured cars, with a lot of
1: marines posted around it. This ministry was never touched and not wrecked by demonstrators.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Ten years after the end of the war, the city still seems to be under siege. In Paradise Square, a new statue symbolises the newfound freedom. It stands on the same base as the statue of Saddam Hussein that was pulled down on April 9, 2003. Was it the toppling of a dictator? or simply a
0: war for oil. That in the minds of Dick Cheney and George Bush and the others, uh, this was a coincidence of interests, a convergence of interests, that a strategic advantage would be accomplished by eliminating Saddam Hussein and putting a pro-American regime in power in Iraq, and at the same time, that would make available uh, the oil fields of Iraq for exploitation by American companies.
2: The Americans claim to be introducing a new world order in the Middle East and winning the so called war on terror. NGOs, for their part, report more than 120,000 civilian victims. Chaos ruled. The Sunnis the Shias, the Kurds. The war in Iraq continued among sectarian militia. In reality, the American invasion, with its whiff of petrol, merely spread the stench of death.
6: One uh, says that uh, uh, the, uh, Iraq is the uh, oil Eldorado. Well, this is, this is indeed true. So it is really the last frontier, let us say. It is the last province that... Uh, can be opened one day to international oil companies, and they they come and they find these supergiant fields, which are no more in, in the rest of the world.
2: Chinese, Russian, American, more than 150 companies jostle for position. And the stakes are high. Iraq's oil fields, the world's second biggest oil reserves. In 2009, contracts were signed the oil fields of West Kurna, Maju, and Rumela were attributed to ExxonMobil, Shell and BP. To the sound of the waves of the Gulf of Guinea, we begin our journey in the black El Dorado. At the end of the 1960s, the Seven Sisters, the major oil companies, controlled 85% of the world's oil reserves. Today, they control just 10%. New hunting grounds are therefore required and the predators are turning their gaze towards Africa. And there's a
1: map with oil derricks popping up in Algeria, Libya, Sudan, Nigeria and Gabon.
2: With peak oil, Middle East wars and the rise in crude prices, Africa is the oil company's new battleground.
1: Nimo Bassi, environmentalist.
2: When the Western world was developing its agriculture
5: and basic industry, They did it an energy source, and that was human energy. And slaves were taken from Nigeria, from Africa. And now it's crude oil. So from the blood in the veins of the slaves, of Africans, from the the palm oil, and now crude oil, it is one story of exploitation from one level to another. And
0: honestly, this has to stop.
1: Michael, Economy Days. Editor-in-Chief, Energy
5: Tribune.
0: The Seven Sisters, seven companies,
5: dominated the petroleum industry at the time that the petroleum industry didn't just mean economic prowess and power. It was really an instrument of American and European, call it Western, projection of power uh, in the third world.
2: Minarets and flare stacks vie for supremacy in the Libyan skies. The burning desert once scornfully dubbed the Sandpit. In 1955, oil sprung from the dunes here, regarded by the oilmen as the best in the world. At the end of World War II, under pressure from the American oil companies, Great Britain and the United Nations installed Idris el Sanusi on Libya's throne.
1: Chukri Ghanem, Libyan Oil Minister, 2006
7: to 2011. In 1959, we discovered first well. It was Libya oil was, as a matter of fact, the whole oil industry. In Libya was an American oil industry because Esso, in that time, uh, find the first oil well, was the first to export oil, and was the first to produce it in less than three years. Libya started producing more than one million. And in less than seven years, Libya reached 3.5 million barrels a day. It was a phenomenon.
2: The kingdom of Libya was an oil paradise for the American majors. The accounting was creative, to the extent that Libya received just 12 cents per barrel. As President Nixon and his advisors said in 1968, King Idris's regime was stable and secure because it was corrupt, truly corrupt. The tankers laden with the finest quality black gold could therefore sail unheeded towards the American coast. Well before the Majors, a French geologist, Conrad Killian, knew about the potential of Libya's oil fields. He spoke of himself as a man who speaks to stones. After two expeditions in the 20s, he confirmed that oil existed in the Sahara and Libyan Fezzan. He was the only man in the world with a map of the Sahara's potential oil reserves. In February 1941, General Erwin Rommel arrived in Tripoli, at the head of the Africa Corps. The same day, he sent his tanks against the British positions, driving them back as far as Egypt. His campaign plan was simple, to open up the access to the Middle East oil fields and then to join up with German forces from the East who were supposed to capture Baku and its fabulous reserves. The war in the North African deserts was a battle for oil.
7: And they were talking about that there is oil in Libya. And and as an irony, Italy and Germany were fighting the uh, uh, Allies and then suffering from the shortage of oil while beneath their feet there is a huge reserve of oil and they lost uh, the war because of the shortage of oil.
2: Back in France, Killian attempted to convince his government his finds were authentic, but only the British Secret Service seemed interested, perhaps too interested.
5: like you. That
1: was when I saw Mr Killian hanging from the window ledge.
2: His head
5: was at this
1: height, the torso was suspended with the legs in the front.
2: Killian was found hanged in a seedy hotel room in Grenoble on April 29, 1950, suspended from a window latch 120 centimetres off the ground. He was 185 centimetres tall. Despite signs of blows... The verdict was suicide. In the aftermath of World War II, France is rebuilding. Dominated by the Anglo-Saxon corporations, it has to gain energy independence. It therefore turns to its colonial empire. A handful of geologists, perhaps remembering Kilian, took the wild risk of searching in the Algerian Sahara, a desert bigger than France itself. Men from CFP and ERAP, the forerunners of Total and Elf, began the long search.
1: Jean-Marie Chevalier of the University of Paris, Dauphine. France's oil strategy, it was important to find oil in the French Empire or former colonies because it was oil that could be paid for in francs. When African countries became independent, they remained in the franc zone, so it was important to find oil payable in French francs.
2: After four years of fruitless drilling, oil finally sprung on June 16, 1956, at Hassim Messaoud. 3,000 metres underground lay one of the biggest oil fields in the world. On that June day, France became a major oil producer.
1: Sadek Vusinha, Algerian energy minister, 1988 to 1991.
2: In 1954,
1: the War of Independence et, uh, had already le, begun.
4: The oil issue will lead the les, French
1: les, to rethink les, les, their strategy
4: in relation to the strategy, whole Algerian war. Uh,